Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Great to be here this morning and good to see you. And uh, man, what a great update. I hope we can get behind Joseph and all that God is doing there. And if you have your Bibles, we turn the book of Psalm 68. It is a great privilege to be here with you this morning. And uh, there's gonna, this is going to be jam-packed, so get your pencils ready and uh, your pens ready and your computers ready, and we'll get going this morning. It is a good morning, amen? Amen. amen. And uh, I'm glad to be here. I got my lovely wife, Amy, and my daughter, Elizabeth, with me this morning, which is exciting for me because they don't always get to be with me on these things. So I'm glad that you're with me this morning. As you turn to Psalm 68, I just want to again let you know how thrilled I am to open this session. And I'm excited to discuss uh, our need to get the Word of God to the world. Uh, You know, uh, 60 to 70 years ago, there was a gentleman who most of us probably don't know. Uh, I never met this man. His name was Don Frazier. And he was going about from church to church, conference to conference, kind of like what we're doing here. And he was preaching about this burden he had to get the Bible uh, in the hands of the local church. Because at that time, publishing houses had taken on the publishing of the Word of God. And he was wise enough to recognize that it would be important to get the Bible in the hands of the local church to publish it. And, uh, you know, that would have been about uh, the the same era as Clifford Clark, Brian Clark's grandfather, and, and several of those contemporary preachers, kind of our granddaddies in the Lord. And they took that on, as many of you know. And now they're in Baptist church ministries. There are, there are publishing houses with, with web presses and all of those things. And it's an incredible thing that God has done uh, because that was coupled with missions and getting the Word of God to the world and putting that in the stewardship of the local New Testament churches. And I don't even think the phrase faith-based uh, anything had really come to anyone's mind yet. That really wasn't on the front of people's mind. But in essence, that was what it was. It was a faith-based operation. And God was using that. Uh, really to prepare us for where we are today. And so uh, if you think about that and you think about those efforts, it's helped us, you know, get to where we are today in publishing the Word of God. In 1820, uh, when the modern mission movement was really launching out, you had men like William Carey, uh, as many of you know about, and you had, uh, you know, several, we go down the list of Philadelphian-era missionaries. In 1820, when the modern missions movement was, was launching uh, and the King James Bible was going around the world. The Philadelphian church age was, was, you know, red hot. World literacy at that time was between 10 and 12%. A small group of people actually could read. And so most of the Bible was being preached and people were receiving it. And God was going, uh, going all over the world with the Gospels in an incredible time. Much more difficult to get places than it is today. But only 10 or 12% of the population could, could actually read. In 1960, when our, our forefathers uh, recently got into this publishing business, 42% of the world's population could actually read. And obviously, predominantly, the Bible that we had in the world was our authorized King James Bible. That was the standard. And by the way, it is the standard for English-speaking people. It is the Word of God. Today, though, the literacy rate uh, is, is around, depending on what statistics you look at, 85 to 95 percent, and going up, except in the United States. And that's not a joke. The only place it's going down right now is, is here. 
But around the world, it's going up. And the population's bumping over 8 billion people. In 1800s, 1820, 1850, it's, it's just under 1 billion. In 1960, it's, it's, it's getting near 4 billion. I wasn't born yet. I was born in 1970. Since I've been alive, the population's doubled. It's, it's almost 8 billion people. That's a lot of souls on the planet. There is a, a real need. There's a real battle to fight, and it is to get the Word of God in every way we can to the world, and we've got to get that done. That's our job. That's why we're meeting. That's how come we're having a missions conference, and we know that the time is short, and millions if not billions of souls will find their way in a Christless eternity if we don't do the job that we're called to do. And we know every dispensation ends in failure, but God forbid it ends because we're not doing our job. If there's a group of people that need to be getting the, the Bible where it needs to go on time, it is this group of people. It is the people that say, yes, we hold fast to the faithful word as we've been taught. It's the people that believe in discipleship. It's the people who believe God has delivered us this word and given us his word. Man, you heard it last night. You heard, uh, you heard Jay talk about how important the word of God is. is. What are we stewarding? It is the Bible. And man, what an incredible thing that God is doing. So in Psalm 68, and I've got to keep moving here. I don't have time to preach. I've got to teach a little bit. Psalm 68, verse 11. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Oh, Lord God, help us. Help us get the word where it needs to go on time. Oh, God, help us understand the time it is. Help us utilize the key men and go to the key cities. And, and Lord, I pray, God, we take that key message and we use the key tools that you've given us, even Bible translation tools, even printing presses, but most importantly, the people of God with the word of God in their hearts. Lord, I pray, God, that you bless the word this morning in this session. As we kick this off this morning, I pray, God, in all that we do, that you get the honor and the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's important to note that the Lord gave the word, and, and we're coming off Christmas, right? So we get, the, we get the issues of giving Christmas gifts and giving, and, and the word of God is a gift. And when God gives us the word, we are stewards. And that's ultimately what discipleship is all about, is stewardship of the word of God, the mysteries of God, and reproducing that for generations to come. But when you look at this passage, the Lord gave the word. Great was the company. That word company, if you look at it in the Bible and you go through and look it up, what you're going to find is that it's associated typically with war. It's, a, it's associated with an army. It's associated with the host, right? The, the Lord's host. It, it's a battle to get the Bible where it needs to go. Great is the company. That's why we've got to be disciplined. That's why we've got to have discipleship. Great is the company of those that published it. And that word published, if you look it up and get a little and drill down on it, you're going to find that that is a word that implies it's, we're bringing some good news. It's not just about paper and ink. It's not just about preaching. It's about the content and the character of God Almighty preaching the Word of God through us, getting the Word of God in the hearts of people. It's about sharing the good news. It's not just the printed and published Word, but that's a part of it. It is also the heralding of the good news, and, and that is our mission. And we are to get the gospel to all nations, as you all know, and it takes an army of people to do that. So getting the Word of God to the world is a God-sized job, a job that incorporates the entire body of Christ. And as we're faithful to take the gospel to every nation, it, it necessitates communication in their language and eventually translation in those same languages. And I want to set forth how fulfilling the Great Commission results in people who hold a faith-based view of Scripture involving ourselves in the publishing of God's Word from a propagation through preaching <clears throat> and entering the preservation process through translation, which is a scary thing to consider. 
So in the time I have left this week, I want to just start with principle number one. You got it on your notes there. Understand biblical precepts. We're just going to start with some precepts. I'm not going to wow you with this information. As a matter of fact, for most of us, this is going to be review. But if we're going to get God's word to the world and fulfill the mission of transmission, we must under, understand biblical precepts for faith-based view of the Bible and Bible publishing. Number one, A, God's words are, are settled in heaven. Right? There's not going to be a lot of debate on that. Hopefully in this crowd we understand Psalm 119 and verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalms 119, 152 says, Concerning thy testimonies I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. So we know God's word is not in jeopardy in heaven. <laughs> He's got it. That is not where the battle is being played out. That, that, that war is won. The battleground's right here. And we know, point B, God's words need to be settled in man's hearts. That's actually where the battle's at. The, the, the destination for God's word <clears throat> is the ready soil of man's heart. Right now in Albania and Zambia and India and many other places all over the world, including uh, 40th and Walnut, Kansas City, whatever, Alabama, uh, wherever you're, who's, who's the farthest away? I mean, someone around the world. Get, throw it out here. Huh? Vietnam? Alb I'd say we have, Doug's here from Romania. So wherever you want to go, right? The, the mission is to get the word of God in the hearts of men and women. And children, get the word of God in the heart of men. And I think we all understand that. And so it's important that we do that. But we've got to find the soft soil of the heart. We've got to find the soft soil in Boston. We've got to find the soft soil in Cass County, Missouri. You've got to find the, the soft soil everywhere you go. Because Luke, Luke 8, 5 says, But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word of God, keep it and bring it forth with patience. Right, we're looking for that soft soil of the heart. We want the word of God to land there. Salvation by grace through faith occurs when the word of God not only changes the mind, but is received in the, and believed in the heart of man. And we know that, Romans 10.10, 10, uh, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Our volition impacts the heart's interaction with God's word. In Hebrews 10.22, the Bible tells us, let us draw near with a true heart and with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A man's heart may be as hard as millstone, but it doesn't have to stay that way. If a man humbles himself before God Almighty, God can purify the heart and replace it with a soft heart, as he did with Israel. Remember, they had that stony heart. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God replaces their heart, and he will replace their heart. A new heart also will I give unto you. This is a prophecy. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of the flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. He will replace that stony heart with a, a fleshly heart, right? And he's talking about the nation of Israel there, prophetically. But we understand that God does that work in the heart. Point C, God inspires his word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, right? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. There is a, the, the word itself has a mission in man's hearts and, and it is inspired Second Peter 1.21 tells us, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God's Spirit, right, it inspired or in, inspirited through holy men. God used His Spirit in the, in the audible voice of men to actually get His Word where it needs to go. And of course He did, because when 10 to 12% of the population can't even read a Bible, how else is He going to get the Word where it needs to go? Right? He's going to speak it. And that's what God's done. And yet, God has always made sure to preserve his word. Whose idea was it to put his word in writing? Well, I'll get to that in a moment. 
Not only does God inspire his word, he, he, God propagates his word. And you guys know Matthew 28, 19 through 20, right? That is the great commission. Go ye, right? Put me in there. Yeah, you need to go, but ye need to go. All of us need to go. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And this is the good news. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Even at Mission Focus. Right? He's with us now. So there's a big task, but he is with us, and he wants to, and he wants to take us forward in faith. So God propagates his word. We know in Acts chapter 2, and I'll talk about this just a little bit further in a moment. He used those apostles, and he, and he set them forth when the Spirit of God indwelled the church. And man, things really took off. And we're still riding that wave until the rapture of the church. And then God preserves his word, right? He propagates, he propagates his word, but he preserves it. We have the New Testament. We have the Old Testament. God preserves his word. And we know Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6 tells us, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And we understand that is not talking about Israel, although God will preserve Israel. The, the context and the grammatical sense of that passage is clearly dealing with God preserving his words. Amen? Amen. 2 Timothy 3.15, and that from a child, Timothy, you knew, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy didn't have an original copy of the Hebrew text. He didn't have a copy of the Law of Moses from Sinai or a copy of Jeremiah because it was stuck in the mud in Euphrates. But he had the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make him wise unto salvation. It was able to get in the soil of the heart, and God was able to use it. And Paul said, you have the Holy Scriptures. And they're also located down there at the synagogue, Timothy. So today we know that God has preserved his word in the Hebrew Masoretic text, the Greek text, and received text of the English Bible and in the authorized version. Over time, God has had his word available. And today it is in the, it is in the English language in the form of the King James authorized version of the Bible. So if you don't, ha you don't have the word of God... <clears throat> I'm sorry, if you don't have the Word of God, unless you have it in the original manuscripts, then you don't have the Word of God, because you don't have the original manuscripts, and nor did Timothy, by the way. And so we understand preservation is a process of purification, but God is well able to do that, and the evidence will be found in the testimony of the Word of God itself. It's a self-defining book, and you guys understand that as you study the Word of God. And I'd like to take a lot more time on just that topic, but time is not going to permit. So I want to do an advertisement. In the foyer or online, you can buy the new book by Greg Axe and Alan Shelby called Long Live the King James. And it will get into that in more detail. But let me just give you a few more principles as we follow some biblical patterns. Point two. Because we need to publish the Word of God. This is a need. It needs to happen in every way, and we've got to understand biblical precepts if that's going to happen. But we also need to follow some biblical patterns. So here's my thesis. We must follow biblical patterns that God has placed in his word if we're going to be faithful to fulfill the mission of transmission. And it's helpful to see the necessary patterns related to how God transforms his inspired word to the written preserved word, because as <clears throat> cause we like to say, a picture is better than a thousand words. And so the Old Testament is God's picture book, and he provides us these types so that we can understand how this works. And you guys know from Romans 15, 4, Paul tells us, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of Scripture might have hope. You got some hope today? Amen. Amen. There's a picture book full of hope. 
1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul also says, Now all these things happen unto them, Israel, for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. And when this was written, we were the end of the earth. And now we're at the end of time, as far as the church age is concerned. And God wants us to pay attention to what's been written, so we can understand how to finish our mission. I love what God's doing through the, the, the fellowship of our churches. It's a Philadelphian effort. To do what we're talking about requires a, a Philadelphian partnership. It can't happen just because one church wants to take it on or another church wants to take it on. This stuff is, is only going to happen as God works in churches of people that love God's word, that love God, and love one another. So to understand the necessary precepts, it's very helpful to study the necessary patterns in the Old Testament. So point A, I'm going to give you a couple patterns. The first one is the pattern of Moses. <clears throat> the pattern of Moses. So we see the process that God used to preserve his word in the way that he gives it uh, to and through Moses. So in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 1, you guys know the text. It says, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto, unto the Lord, <clears throat> that Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and, notice the word, told the people all the words of the Lord. All the words of the Lord. That's the second mention of that phrase in the Bible. And all the judgments and all the precepts, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord hath said, we will do. And then verse 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. That's actually the third mention of that phrase, all the words of the Lord. And he rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So you know here God is giving, obviously, the, the law there, on, and he's giving it to Moses. And I want you to notice, the first time we see all the words of the Lord that are written in Scripture, it's in this book of Exodus. The second time is there in verse 3, and the, fourth time, or the third time is there in verse 4. The first two times you see it is dealing with the audible inspiration of God's Word. All the words, the inspired words, were received and they were spoken. But then you get to this, this, this verse 4, all, now they're written. And the word is written down. The first time we see it written is right here. The word is written. The inspired word, the inspirited words are spoken by God, and now they're recorded and scripturated. Which, by the way, when you go to the, the, the uh, dictionary and you look up this word inscripturated, which I'm going to use heavily, you're going to say, this is, not a, this is not a word in English. Well, that's because they haven't caught up with this, okay? So when you're on the cutting edge, just, you know, just roll with it, man. They'll catch up. It's inscripturated, and I'm stealing that from Alan Shelby, by the way. But he, I'm a disciple, so you know I'm just going with what I got. Blame him. So, so we, so then, so then, <clears throat> this is what happens. God, He gave the law to Moses in a book, and and Moses dedicated it with blood, right? In, in that same chapter, down in verse five, and, and and He sent young men and children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood He sprinkled on the altar, and He took the the book of the covenant, and He read in the audience of the people, and they said, "All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient." And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these concepts. Now, all these words, plural, every word, all the words, Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And in this case, it's written with the finger of God. I mean, amazing. 
And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. All right, so if you're into the original copy, I mean, that's it. You got the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's inscripturated right there. It's in stone. I mean, you can't get a better copy than that. I mean, it's not even on papyrus, man. This is awesome. Not vellum. This is stone. Nothing more sure and original than, than that manuscript. But we know Moses loses his temper. And he destroys the original manuscript in verse 19. And it came to pass, Exodus 32, 19. As soon as he came nigh to the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. So God, well, he lost the original. Wah, wah, wah. Right? So what happens? Well, we know what happens because we know our Bibles. God preserved his word. That's in Exodus 34. Right? Ten chapters later. And the Lord said unto Moses, you're going to have to go to work, son. Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first. You're going to go to work. And I will write upon the tables the the words which are in the first tables. He says, hey, you go to work and you hew out a couple tables. And I'm going to write on them. Because this has got to be right. And by the way, I got it on my hard drive, so you don't have to worry. It'll be exactly the way it needs to be. No problems, because it's settled in heaven. But as you go on through the text and you read this, notice it says, And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount, and no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man uh, be seen throughout all the mount. Rather, let the flocks and the herds feed before the mount. And he hewed two tables of stone, like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord commanded him, and took in his hand the two tables of stone. So he shows up with his blank tablets. And God said... He would write upon these tables. But in this case, he doesn't use his finger. He uses a different instrument. And this instrument is guess who? And you know who? It's Moses. Exodus 34, 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Moses, hey Moses, what are you waiting on? My finger? No, write thou these words. I'm going to use you as my instrument. For after the tenor of these words have I made a covenant with thee and with Israel, and he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, neither did he eat bread nor drink water. Beloved, it was a supernatural process. You don't go forty days and forty nights without eating and drinking unless God is doing something for you. This is, God is letting us know. This, this process of get, using him as an instrument is a supernatural process. Be praying for Aaron Vogley and Yonita. I guarantee you, the devil does not want them translating or uh, putting the word of God in the Albanian language. He goes on to say, and he wrote, he, Moses, wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Or was it God who wrote upon the tables? Yes. Yes. God wrote them down. The Ten Commandments were written down. It was with God. God was the one who wrote it. But he used Moses as his instrument. In Moses, we see the process of verbal inspiration of God's word, divine inscripturation of God's word, and preservation through the use of a human instrument, Moses himself, as he provided the Ten Commandments, as he provided the word of God on Sinai. And we know the original copy went where? In the ark, or that second. It really wasn't original, because the original got destroyed. So there you have it. God keeps his word. The second pattern I want to give you is Jeremiah. Jeremiah and you know, or many of you are familiar with this as well. This is the one we like to use the most. 
Jeremiah chapter 36, we see very clearly how God inspires and scripturates and preserves his word in the account of Jeremiah's prophecy uh, to King Jehoiakim. Without getting into all the detailed study, we see that God speaks through Jeremiah and Baruch wrote the words that he heard from the mouth of Jeremiah. So you have the inspiration as you have Jeremiah speaking the, the words of God. God is downloading them through his servant Jeremiah, and you have Baruch, the ready scribe, right there ready to go. And he's, and he's writing them down. Why? Because this has to be transmitted. This information is going to be transmitted. And they're going to take it somewhere. And these people can actually read. And they can hear. It's going to be read. It's going to be spoken. It's going to be repeated because this needs to be transferred from one king to the next. Without getting into the detailed study, we see that God speaks through Jeremiah and Baruch, and he wrote the words that he heard spoken from Jeremiah. In verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, that the word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from that day. I spake unto thee from the days of Josiah, even unto this day, it may be that the house of Judah, this is what God wanted, right? Because he has a burden, he has a heart for people to receive the, soft, the word in the soft soil of the heart. So listen to what God wants. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, and that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. He was want, looking for soft soil that it might fall upon. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. So now we're, we're, we have a, a roll here. So like the original copy of the Ten Commandments, the original copy of the prophecy given to Israel through the inspiration of Jeremiah, the inscripturation of Baruch was then destroyed by King Jehoiakim in his winter palace fireplace, Right? Jeremiah 36, 22, and it came to pass that when Jehu died, uh, the officer there uh, in the court had read three or four leaves, right? He's reading it to the king. He cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the, the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. So it did not have the desired effect. Is that because God's impotent? No. It's because man's heart is hard. And oh no, what happens? The word is missing. We don't have the original manuscript. Well, you know what happens. God is not concerned with losing the original copy. He goes ahead and he downloads a prophecy once more. And this time he adds more revelation based on the people's rejection of the word of God. The first picture, of course, is how God preserved both the Old and New Testament. In verse 32 of that same chapter, then Jeremiah then took Jeremiah another roll, and he gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. So everything that he had heard, in essence, an Old Testament. And then after that colon, guess what he does? And there were added besides unto them many like words. Because of the hardness of their heart, he added a little more revelation that they needed to know. So God illustrates his ability both to preserve his word and fulfill his prophecies by commanding Jeremiah to take the original autograph. (laughs) He says, just in case you get any critical text guys in the room, the original autograph is thrown into the Euphrates River, for goodness sake. And let that thing sink, because it in itself has a prophetic application. 
and destruction that's coming upon Babylon. All right, so God illustrates his ability both to preserve his word and fulfill his prophecy. Jeremiah 51, 63. And it came to pass, and it shall be, I'm sorry, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it in the midst of Euphrates. So in the case of the book of Jeremiah, you must have a faith-based view of preservation and translation because God has got the original in the bottom of the Euphrates River. So the Hebrews believe that God had given them his words, just as Psalm 12, 7 says, right? Thou hast kept them, O Lord. Thou hast preserved them from this generation forever. You have a copy. Do you believe you have a copy of Jeremiah in your Bible? Amen. Amen. You do. Why? Because God has preserved it. He has preserved it for you in the English. Hallelujah to you. That's the first pattern, or the second pattern. The first pattern was Moses. The second pattern is Jeremiah. And the last one is the apostles themselves, and I'm going to be done. So after the resurrection, God gave the apostles charge to go. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, and you know how that goes. Make disciples. Go everywhere with the word of God, the Great Commission. The practical accomplishment of the Great Commission has always necessitated translation. You say, well, what's your proof text? Acts 2.8. And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Right off the bat, getting the gospel to those gathered for, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God used the, the, the obviously, there was a sign of tongues so that Israel would receive their Messiah and all of that. But at the end of the day, what was he doing? He was delivering the good news. He was publishing the word in their language, their, the heart language that they could actually receive it in. And I'm certain that most, if not many, of those Hebrews gathered there already knew Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew. They already had a lot of language down, but nonetheless, God saw fit to say, hey, I'm going to do this, and you're going to hear it in your own heart language. So let me conclude with this, and I'm going to ask Arion to get ready to come up. Translation leading to inscripturation has been a natural process of preaching the gospel since the day of Pentecost. From the first century to this day, God has been disseminating God's word to the peoples of the earth through their heart language. Whether it was Greek, Italic, Goth, Saxon, High German, Old English, Latin, or many other languages over the past 2,000 years, uh, portions or even entire New Testament Bibles have been translated into various languages. The vast majority of languages spoken uh, for the past 2,000 years didn't even have an alphabet and were dialectic and, and very diverse. The work of translating the Bible into known languages was an arduous task before the advent of the Gutenberg Press. Copies would have, uh, would have to be copied very carefully by hand and not circulated uh, very widely because uh, they didn't have the capacity to do that. The access to education and the Nicolaitan Babylonian priest class adopted by the Catholic system caused systematic movement to limit access to actual Bible and, and form a mystical barrier from the, of the priesthood from the common people in the church. So literacy was not a virtue. It was not uh, desired. It was despised among the church. And the ruling class literally could then uh, control the, the masses. Bible believers have always existed. And the Bible was translated in various languages all across Europe, Asia, Africa, even through the Dark Ages. And with the advent of the printing press, then the advent of technology as we have today, the opportunity to literally fulfill the Great Commission is greater than ever, but the population is greater than ever. And the opportunity to literally fulfill the Great Commission is within our, in our grasp. Now, we don't need that for the Jesus to return. That's a heresy that's often prop, propagated among people that are in the translation world. No, we just need to get it done. 
the best we can. Today, we have more access to more people than ever. And English has replaced Greek as far as the language of the world. And though many people uh, do speak English, not all do, and God still wants to mobilize individuals as well as nations in their hearts so they can get the word of God to the world and reproduce Christ in the lives of others and see entire nations, people groups change with the gospel. That's why we're working on this Tonga project. That's why we're working on Albania. We're not just talking about reaching a few people. We want to see entire nations, groups of people change for the gospel. And this gets really practical as holy men of God preach the truth of God's word through the aid of translators as you all, all take mission trips and you get involved in the mission, you get cranked up at mission focus and you go preach the word. What you will find is what you heard Joseph Hayden say just a little bit ago. Once we got into the discipleship process, we realized they didn't have a faithful translation of the word of God. And because you're about the mission of God and you're about publishing the word of God, what you will naturally run into is a need to see God's words get translated in the, in the, in the language of other people that you desperately love and you want to see them understand the Bible like you do. And so you want to help them in any process that it takes. And you and I may not know their language like they do, but God brings faithful men along with supernatural gifts, and they themselves are gifts to the body. Why? Because he wants to accomplish his mission and his power for his glory. We're not so presumptuous to, to think that we have the ability to translate a perfect word. No one would do that. But man, we want to give the best effort to be faithful to the words that God has delivered unto us. Jesus Christ himself is the pattern. We're coming off of Christmas. How in the world did God do that? The perfect, sinless Son of God came forth through a sinful woman named Mary. We don't believe in the immaculate conception. Mary was a sinful woman. And yet God delivered the sinless Son of God, the perfect word, through a, sinless, or through a sinner named Mary. How, did he, how does he do that? It's miraculous. God does it. And so with that, I want to just... Uh, encourage you this week to continue to, to pray about your role in the publishing of God's Word in every way, preaching it, teaching it, and maybe translating it. And with that, I want to turn it over to Ariel, and he's going to take the next, uh, next part of the section and, and encourage us in the need to translate God's Word or to publish God's Word. Thank you. All right. I'm good. Well, good morning, y'all. Um, first of all, let me allow me to say thank you for having us. Uh, this is my first time um, here with my family at Mission Focus, and I've always wanted to be here for years. Uh, Pastor Sam, thank you so much for the invitation. Brian, thank you for sharing your time with me. I know you would have done a much better job than me. But let me just uh, share a little bit about what we're doing. Uh, I am from Albania. I was born and raised uh, in Albania, and we are translating the Bible in Albanian. So I, I want to give you a little bit of history of how we, got, how we got to where we are today and what led to it. So first of all, let's start with, you know, keeping uh, uh, everything to context. We are in, in America, so let's start with a map. Um, this is a map of Europe. <laughs> 
So uh, Albania is a very little country. I wouldn't expect somebody to know that, but it's uh, right across from Italy. The, if you find the boot at the hill right across from there, 50 miles from there, is Albania is, is north of Greece. And so obviously there's a lot of history in that part of the world. Uh, Albania is mentioned in the, in the scriptures in Romans 15, uh, verse 19. Paul says, through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of, of Christ. Illyricum is the ancient name for, for, for Albania uh, and used to be a much bigger territory than it is now. The next slide uh, will show you that. The, the Illyrians right across from Italy and above Greece were, were a large territory of, of people. So the, the gospel was there from, from the first century. Uh, some historical writings say that a church was established in the city of Duras, which is uh, about 30, 25, 30 miles from the capital, Tirana, uh, in year 55 AD from, from Paul. Now that's only uh, unverifiable uh, information, but some historical records indicate that the gospel was there from the first century. And you can go, uh, next slide, we, we see, you know, there's uh, a lot of uh, ancient ruins and, and so forth from that world. But to the next slide, the, the uh, Albania was and is still positioned in, in a very key geographical position. Uh, one of the ancient roads of uh, the Roman Empire was Via Egnantia, which went from Italy all the way through Albania, all the way to Constantinople, or present-day Istanbul. So Albania was in the midst of uh, a lot of the trades and people going through and merchants going, going through. And so the scriptures and the gospel was there from the first century. You can still go to Albania today and find uh, a lot of manuscripts that had made their, their way from, from the first century and on. Uh, the most famous of, of them is Codex Beratinus. Uh, this is a, a picture of it contains two, two Gospels. It used to contain four of them. This was something that, that has survived centuries of wars and other things that went on into, into the country. Uh, this, this particular manuscript was the number one in the list for the Nazis uh, to, to obtain when they invaded uh, most of Europe and, and Albania as well. And so they, they had a particular interest in works of art and, and especially the Bible. Um, I don't know if they read it, but they had an interest in having it. And uh, but so this particular manuscript was hid in a well, and that's why it's a purple color because of the oxidation of the sil silver letters in, in which it were written. But in the, in the Middle Ages, Albania was under the, Rome, the Ottoman Empire, sorry, for about 500 years. And for 500 years, the country was absolutely devastated. Uh, they did not allow the Albanian language to be written, no schools, no books to be published. So anything that had to do with the, with the Albanian culture, it was absolutely destroyed. They destroyed the churches that were there. They, they built mosques on top of, of the, the churches. And so this is a, a map of the late 1800s, early 1900s in Albania, uh, which shows only a few roads had been left after a 500-year occupation of the Ottoman Empire of the Turks. They absolutely destroyed everything that had to do with, with culture and language infrastructure, and only a few roads had, had remained by the time 
uh, that Albania declared independence in 1912. Uh, in the 1800s, the London Bible Society took an interest in having the Bible translated into Albanian. And there, they had a long list of countries that they wanted and languages they wanted to translate the Bible into. And Albania was number 19 on their list. They really took an interest and invested in having the Word of God translated into, into Albanian. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is the map that I was talking about. And then this, this is the London Bible Society. And so as a result of their work, it was hard to find men, people who were uh, willing and able to carry on a translation. So in 19, in, I'm sorry, in 1824 is the first published, published book in Albanian uh, of the, math, the Gospel of Matthew. It is written in the Albanian language, but Albania did not have an alphabet. Because of what the, the, the Turks had done for over 500 years, the Albanian language had ceased to exist as a written language and, and only survived as a spoken language. As a result, this, this, uh, this gospel was printed in Albanian language, but with Greek letters. And there were very few people who, who would even be able to read that. But a few years later, uh, God will, will use uh, this man in, in the next slide, Kostandin Christofaridi, a man who knew about 10 languages, very learned man. Uh, he studied in, in Greece, he's from Albania, he studied in Greece, uh, who took, worked with the London Bible Society to translate the Bible in, into the Albanian language. He invented an alphabet because we didn't yet have an alphabet, and he, he worked to produce a Bible in Albania. He managed to finish the New Testament and five books of the Old Testament, and he passed away before he was able to complete the whole Bible. His translation was done from uh, the, the Texas Receptus, and he also had access to the King James Bible, uh, we see that now that we are comparing uh, his, his work with, with the King James. And as, as we go through his work, we can see that, for instance, the words that are in italics in, in the King James, he would put those in brackets to let you know that they were, uh, they were in italics uh, in, in the original text, did not contain them. But see, he did a, 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 great, a great job bringing uh, the Bible into the Albanian language. Let's go to the next slide. There are some of the books that he published, and the next one. Here's, here's one more. So here's, here's a, a picture of, of the front page, the preface in the Bible. He would give you a key of how you were to read the Albanian words, because the, al the alphabet didn't exist yet. So if you spoke Arabic, then he would have a key that this is what this letter sounds in Albanian. So if you know Arabic, if you know French, if you know Italian, these, he will give you a key in the beginning so you would go and find how each letter is pronounced and then you would be able to read the word in Albanian because there was still no, nobody in the country that could, could, could read and write Albanian. So these people were educated outside of the country in, in the West and, and their work is, is absolutely a work of, of God in, in the Albanian language. And so you have some more books that were published uh, that, that the work continued after his death through another family that were uh, Bible believers, and then uh, they, they continued to publish his book. The alphabet, the official alphabet that we use even today uh, was, was finalized in 1908. 
And so that is the alphabet that, that we use today. And so others continued his work into publishing the, the Bible, what he had translated with a, a modern Albanian and the alphabet. Albania declared independence in, in 1908 uh, from the Ottoman Empire, and the man that you see there is the man that, that uh, declared our independence. And one year later, in 1913, he would go and, and tour most of the European countries that helped to preserve Albania, because after the Ottoman Empire fell, most of the Balkans were under the Ottoman Empire. So after the Ottoman Empire uh, fell, a, a lot of the big powers were pushing to grab the lands, whatever they could. And so a lot of the lands of Albanian-speaking people were left out of the official country of Albania today. So even today, uh, north of Albania, Montenegro and Macedonia, you have about 40% of the population is Albanian-speaking. Albanian Kosovo is 99%. Greece as well has a, a great number of Albanian-speaking people. So there's Albanians and Albanian-speaking people uh, living in the surrounding uh, countries. But he, he went to London to to thank them for preserving Albania and not wiping it out, like many of the uh, countries around Albania wanted to completely get rid of it. And their argument is that these are not a people, they, they don't deserve to have a state, a country of their own. And so he went to, his first stop was to the London Bible Society. And he thanked them, he was a Muslim by the way, and he thanked them for their role in translating the Bible into Albanian. Because he said, I, can, I could not go to the Western powers, to the big powers who were deciding whether Albania should be a country or not, because the countries around them were, were uh, arguing that uh, these people don't exist. They don't have an identity. And he argued, to, and, and his argument was, if the, Albani the, if the Bible was not translated in Albania, if we don't have something in print that we are a nation, we are a people, we, and we do have an identity, there will be nothing for us to show that we are a people, and we are an identity, and we deserve to be a country. So his first stop was, was to, the, to the Bible Society to thank them for the contribution into the Albanian language. If you want to be a patriot, if you want to love your country, love Jesus and do his ministry, because he will exalt a nation that, that follows him. And so it was in 1994 when we finally got uh, an Albanian full copy of the translation of the Albanian Bible, both Old and New Testament. After World War II, Albania sided with the Eastern Bloc, with the Soviet uh, satellite nations, if you will, and, and so Albania was under communist rule from 1944 to 1991. That's when communism fell. So I was born under communism. I was still uh, a young, young kid when communism fell. But I remember enough of the way of life and how things were under communism. And this was a very harsh form of communism. Uh, a lot of Eastern countries were communist, but Albania took it all the way to the end. Uh, our dictator was, was so harsh that he would not trade with any country that was not communist. And so he would only trade with China and Russia until the 70s, till he figured out that they were not communist enough. So he threw them out of the country, and he wouldn't deal with anyone. So you can imagine under that isolation that the country was, was really devastated, uh, the economy, the, the people. And Albania became the only and first country in the world to constitutionalize atheism. In 1967, Albania wrote 
in the Articles of the Constitution that we are an atheist country. It is legal to believe in God. It is legal to have any form of religious expression. That meant churches, Bibles, and any form of expression of, of religion, of, of faith. An absolutely devastating decision which devastated the whole country. But in 1991, God had grace, and he brought down that regime. And the first wave of missionaries started coming in. And I was a teenager at the time, I was in high school. Uh, we started debating in class, the, the, the topic of the day was freedom of speech. Nobody could believe that all of a sudden, you could say whatever you wanted, <laughs> and not fear any repercussions. That was a very foreign idea to us. So all day we would argue about anything we wanted to argue about. And one of the things was, of course, uh, the topic of religion. Is there a God? And so, you know, I was, I was raised under atheism, and so I was very much given into atheism and evolution and all that. And I would argue, and some of my, my, my friends, uh, had, they, they started believing that there was a God. And so we would have these debates. And I wanted to get a hold of a Bible so bad just to prove that it was wrong. But I couldn't find one. Nobody could find one. There was no Bibles in the country. And I, I begged and I begged. My motives weren't right. I, I wanted to, to tease my friends. So I said, give me a Bible so I can read it and make fun of it. But I couldn't find one. Nobody had a Bible. And so at that time, what many of you know, but some of you don't know in this crowd, is that in the late 80s, KCBT took discipleship ministry to Decatur, Alabama. And in Decatur, Alabama, there was, there was a man uh, by the name of Jeff Bartell who was sent out as a missionary one year later after communism fell. In 1992, he came to Albania. And he led me to the Lord, and he discipled me. And we still didn't have a Bible, a full Bible. Until 1994, we got this, this Bible, which was translated from the Nuova Diodati, the new, it would be like the New King James Version in Italian. And it was an amazing work that was done very quickly because all of a sudden you have new believers that are getting saved and they have nothing to read. So under the circumstances, they did an incredible job of translating. But we need to understand that the people that translated it, they didn't know doctrine. They were good at languages, but they didn't understand doctrine. So, of course, this needed, with the understanding that a few years later, this needed to be revised. And, and as, as people matured in the faith, they would give an input, the Albanian believers, into how the word will, will, would be uh, uh, perfected. Uh, unfortunately, that never came to fruition. A translation that was done later in, in or an update that was done later in 2008, uh, instead of purifying uh, the, the verses that needed to be so, uh, they combined the two lines of manuscripts and they added more from the other line of, of manuscripts, uh, which you know, made, it, made it actually worse. In 2020, another translation came out. This, this is the next slide, uh, which is a, a, wor a work of uh, ecumenical uh, foundation. Uh, it's done by a Greek Orthodox priest, a Catholic priest, and, and a Protestant. And this is an ecumenical Bible. It goes, uses the wrong manuscripts. It takes out the word spirit from the Bible and many un, uh, other blunders 
that uh, affect the words of God. Uh, you are familiar with, with this chart. I won't spend, on the next slide, I won't spend any time with the, with the two lines of manuscripts. But why do we need a new Bible in Albania? Because we are passionate about God's words. Not just the word of God in general as a, as a message, but we are passionate about his very words. And he deserves it. And you'll, you'll see the next slide, uh, the current translation, how you would, these would be the same things that you would see in English. This is Acts 8, uh, 37 is missing, but instead of just not putting the verse there, they would blend 36 and 37 together. And then they have a pop-up there that, you know, if you put your mouse over it, it will say that some of the earliest and best manuscripts do not contain this verse. Uh, but they don't just take it out. I mean, they take it out, but, you know, they leave you a note uh, to puzzle you why they've done that. Uh, <laughs> but the same things that you would have in, uh, in English, and I would have these verses in English because uh, you would be familiar with these. Uh, for instance, Colossians 1.14 is missing the redemption through his blood. That's kind of an important uh, phrase. Uh, Luke 2.33, uh, Joseph, as his mother, has been turned to the child's father, father and his mother, and Joseph was not his father. If he was, none of us would be saved <laughs> because Christ had, had the blood of God in him, Acts chapter 20. Second Corinthians 2, 17, of course, you know that as early as the first century, Paul writes that there were many that were corrupting the word of God. And some of them were so upset that the Bible was calling them out on what they were doing, then they went in that corrupted this verse. So it doesn't say that they were corrupting the Word of God. So anyway, you see that there is a need for a translation uh, because we are passionate about God's words. And of course, we're not definitely the most qualified, but God doesn't need qualified people. He needs obedient people. He needs people that are passionate about Him. And it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 12, for there is, uh, be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. What God will accept from, from us is what we have. And what we have is, is with gifts that God has, called, uh, has given us. And so we sat down, and we had been praying for this since 1993, that God will give to us an accurate translation of the Bible in Albanian. And we kept waiting and waiting and praying for years, saying, God, why, why isn't somebody doing something about this? And to fin finally, God said, why don't you do something about this? So we sat down and said, we're not qualified. We can't do this. We sat down and, and we, we wrote down what it would take for somebody to take on this work. And lo and behold... We had all the, the tools and the gifts for somebody to take on this, this, this work. All it was needed is for somebody to make this, themselves available. And so I'll be sharing more about uh, our, our, our project and, and what we have done so far. But let me just briefly mention that in order for someone to take on the role of a translator, translating the scriptures into any language, I believe it is important to have a biblical view of languages. If we study the Bible and we look at the first word, the first mention of the word language in the Bible, it is in Genesis chapter 11. And it says that the whole, worth, all, the whole earth was on one language and on one speech. And they, they want to make themselves a name. And the Lord says in verse 6 that behold, the people is one and they have all one language. 
And so he com comes down to confound their language. And therefore, the, the, the name of the place is Babel because the Lord did there confine the language of all the earth. That is the first mention of the word language in the Bible. And then the last mention of the, Lord, of the word language in the Bible is in Acts chapter 2. At the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit come, it says that they were of one accord in one place. And they hear through the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit, they hear the Word of God, every one of them, and I think it mentions about 13 different nationalities. I won't read the, the, the verses, but you can read them. And they all hear the Word of God in their own tongue. And it says in, in verse 6 that they were confounded because every man heard them speak in their own language. And they were, they were amazed and marveled because of the wonderful works of, of God. If you compare the two passages of Genesis 11 and Acts chapter 2, you will see a big contrast. If when God is telling the story of how he's going to communicate with human beings using languages, he gives us two models. And we can't miss it because it's the first mention and the last mention. One model is when people want to make a name for themselves and in an ecumenical effort, they all become one, but not like the Acts chapter 2 of one accord. And God is not happy with them and their motives, and so he confounds them. He confounds their language. But in Acts chapter 2, they're confounded in a whole different way. They're amazed at what God has done in taking the word that is being preached in one language and then translating that into the language of the hearers because that is the work of God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. He wants to take the word of God into the languages and into the peoples of the whole world so that everyone can know the Lord. Everyone can, can read for themselves the, the, the Word of God. My time is gone, but I will share more uh, about this and, and our, our work and our approach to, to translation and what we have done there. Thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.